Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Russ? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing good. So, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So, what we been up to? You know, we just finished a Kickstarter uh, on last Thursday, and now uh, I'm waiting for my editor to get back with notes for my last book. And then I will start writing the next book in uh, this series, which is due out in 2021. Nice. The Guffer series? Is that the one you're talking about? Uh, I have written the fifth book in that series, and that's the next book that my editor's working on. But this is a new book that series that I'm working on called The Obsidian Spindle Saga. Um, can you tell them say a little bit more about that? Or is it like a hush-hush kind of thing? Uh, I probably shouldn't talk about the Obsidian Spindle Saga yet. I can say okay. that it's a combination of um, of fairy tales, uh, Lovecraft, and uh, mythology, which is kind of my my thing is sort of mythology and monsters. So yes. it's very much in that zone, but a little bit broader than I've been writing before. So it's uh, it's uh, it's I finished three books in it already um i need to write the fourth and then that will be out uh i believe in january of 2021 and then uh the fifth book in the gods verse should be out in june of 2020 and then i will write the sixth book in that series assuming that the fifth book does well nice we got to enter what started like your um interest into like writing about monsters and mythology uh, so I'm a lapsed Catholic. Uh, I grew up with uh, a lot of religion in my life. Uh, my dad had gone to minor seminaries. Uh, my mom had went to church every week. I was confirmed, which uh, is like after 13 years in the Catholic Church, they kind of call you a full-blown member of the Catholic Church. And then my mom afterwards said, well, I got you confirmed, and now you're on your own pretty much if you want to continue with religion. And I wasn't much for Catholicism or Christianity, but I did have a lot of burning questions like what really is out there. And that led me to Eastern religion and paganism and uh, and just like, where do we come from? What else is out there? And uh, sort of uh, my interest is in uh, smashing a lot of mythology together. Uh, so Greek and Roman and 
Christian and Norse and Egyptian and what you find across all of them is uh, there's a lot of commonality. And so the gods verse specifically, but pretty much all of my work is about sort of twisting mythology and uh, and monsters and uh, using them for my own ends to tell a much bigger story. Nice. Sounds like me. Sounds like like all that stuff. Like uh, I went to deep into like mythology too. It's really, especially like the old like sand like um before Egypt stuff. That's yeah, it's really cool. uh, it's it's pretty interesting. The more you look into it, the more you look into it, the more similarities that you see between a lot of religions and the stories that they tell. And uh, Christianity is really at its base, just like mixing up a lot of religions also you know ishtar for uh the uh birth of uh, jesus and then pagan christmas trees and kind of like uh, a best of all the other religions uh so if you study christianity and catholicism for long enough it's bound to bring you down this other mythology rabbit hole because uh as christianity spread they sort of incorporated all of these things from other religions into them to make to make it palatable for the locals uh, in the areas that the Romans conquered. Yeah, they were, if I remember, like they had a little trouble like converting people to Catholicism, so they had like had to adopt a lot of paganism stuff into their traditions. Absolutely. So, yeah. like the Christmas tree is a is is a big one. But what would happen would be the Romans would 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 march into and capture another area, and uh, they would uh, not get buy-in from the people in that area to adopt Christianity, and so uh, they would sort of uh, uh, adopt pieces of their local customs and religions into their uh, into Christianity, which is where you get a lot of. Uh, a lot of the best myths, uh, you know, the Easter Bunny comes from uh, from another religion uh, that was incorporated into it. Uh, Jesus probably, if he was a human, was born in uh, in March, not December. But yeah. December is a very important time to a lot of pagans, uh, and that's uh, uh, and so we get all of these sort of things smashed together when it comes to. Um, when it comes to Christianity as well, and uh, and and just, I mean, I've 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 always been sort of plagued by this question of like, why are we here, and kind of like, what is the truth of what's out there, mm-hmm. and uh, and all of my work on some level is about answering that question. Whether it's uh, I have a book called Worst Thing in the Universe, which is narrated by God. I have books about. Uh, about aliens and monsters and all sorts of mythology. But at the end, it really is like, uh, it's really trying to answer that question of like, what, what really is out there? And, um, and, 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 and my struggle with my own faith and spirituality and religion. I think that's why, uh, even people who are religious can sort of at least respect my work, even if they don't agree with it, because it doesn't come across as, you know, blasphemous or anti-religion it's really like an earnest pursuit of of what i believe the truth is and what I, and my struggle to figure out what the truth is like i think everyone goes 
through that a lot. I'll, if you're not, they're like really in their head. Like, you, like you have to like really question everything. Like, yeah, I mean, I know some people come to it quite early about on being. Some people are quite early and they understand. They, they grasp their faith quite early, but it's still for most of us. I think we struggle with it for our entire lives. Even the ones of us who are uh, who uh, are uh, devout Catholics or yeah. Jews or, or 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 Muslim or Hindi or whatever it is, I think uh, most the majority of people even that believe in a religion are um, are still struggle with some of the tenets of it, and I think. Uh, I think maybe maybe that's why people are drawn to my work. I mean, that's the best sort of guess that I have at this point, uh, because otherwise uh, it's quite sacrilegious to talk about how God is really a feigned drunk named Bacchus and uh, and and all of the, that the devil may not be the bad guy and that like all of these things um, are out there. So uh, but I do get a very I tend to get a pretty good reception from. Uh, religious people um which is which i did not expect uh i went to salt lake city last year which is the home of the mormon religion i expected to get like strong drawn and quartered up there as uh my books are all about like questioning catholicism and uh i'm quite progressively liberal and and uh and i was surprised at how how uh, open-minded they were to, uh, to trying my work, even even though it's uh, quite uh, not anti-religion, but it's certainly not like pro-Catholicism either or pro-Christianity yeah. either. Yeah. Um. Sorry. Do you ever have uh, trouble like when you're writing the middle of a book, like? where to take it in the plot or anything like that? Uh, I used to have a lot more trouble with it when I first started writing. So mm-hmm. my, uh, you know, my first books, they took quite a long time. They would take maybe a year or more. Uh, there are two kinds of writers. Uh, the people that like have an outline, they call plotters. And the ones that mm-hmm. just kind of uh, don't, they call pantsers. And I used to be quite a pantser where I would just go by the seat of my, my, um, my pants and it, that works for standalone books, I think. Uh, okay, because you don't have to. You don't have to have the the world doesn't have to make sense outside of that singular book. But once I started writing in series, it become a lot more more uh, necessary for me to to hunker down and start plotting out things to make sure that uh the there was internal consistency and logic within each book and once i started plotting books at first i hated it um because i was like the magic is gone but now um it really really made my uh i i could really write a a lot quicker so i used to write maybe 500 or a thousand words a day and uh, once I started plotting and really working on it, I can now write about 5,000 words a day, which is where I where I'm where I'm paced at. And because I the, because of the way that I plot, I still give myself a lot of latitude. But um, uh, but the, the hardest part is the outline phase 
when it comes to figuring out what the plot's going to be. But also when you're doing a big book series, uh, you kind of want to take things in many different angles and you're often not able to because of the internal logic that you created in earlier books. Uh, so uh, it becomes a lot harder to uh, for me to get excited about each book because it's it's uh, it's not about the discovery anymore. It becomes more maintenance. You know, you're with yeah. the same characters a lot. You're with the same plot. You're, you're you're telling a similarly paced story, even if it's not a similarly plotted story. And and uh, uh, but there is also comfort in going back to the characters that you know so well. Um, you end up being able to write books quite a bit faster. And once you know who the characters are, I think the plots become a lot easier. Uh, because, uh, you know, you'll be you'll you'll either say if you're doing a standalone kind of book in a series, you'll either say, OK, uh, I know uh, that this person is a detective or this person is going to fall in love by the end or this kind of this is the kind of book it is. It's sort of like I have a, the God's versus very fantasy thriller. So, you know, I know that it's going to be like world ending stakes or universe ending stakes and i know that the characters are going to be uh, are going to do x y and z and this is how they interact with the world so you end up uh you end up knowing the kinds of stories that you can tell which makes it easier or with a stand with a series like the obsidian spindle saga you know where you ended the last book so yeah. you know you know and you know how far each book in each book you get so you kind of know where they're starting and you know where uh, where you want them to end each character, and so uh, I'm about the fourth book in this series kind of ends the first coda of this uh, this this series, which I intend to be about 16 books or so long. Uh, so I know that by the end of book four, I have to resolve all of the plot threads that have been building up for the previous four books, yeah. and each book is kind of like that, you know. I put someone in peril and then like get them out and then set up threads for the next book. And I know that they have to get to a certain place by the next book or in order for the audience to be satisfied. So hmm. now that I've written five books in the God's Verse and three books in the Obsidian Spindle Saga, uh, it becomes a lot easier to at least see where the plot is and to know where I have to go uh, because I have a roadmap. Nice. Is it is writing graphic novels a little bit different from writing a novel? Uh, it can be. I actually think they're uh, they're very similar. If you like plotting, the nice yeah. thing about writing a graphic novel is that you can, because you know how long a a, a, a chapter uh, a, an issue is. So our my issues tend to be twenty pages long. Yeah. I can actually work uh, out to end, so I can I can go from. I can I can write page one, page two, page three, page four, page five, all the way up to page 20. And I can actually uh, write what happens on page one and page 20 and work sort of inward to page 10 if I wanted to. So if I'm having trouble knowing what happens between those two points, when I'm writing a graphic novel, often I will say, well, this is where it starts. This is where it ends. And now we have to work inward toward the middle. You can't really do that with a I can't do that with a novel, at least, because yeah. there's so much discovery in a novel, yeah. even though I plot it. Um, but 
I um uh, uh, so that is the main issue. The all the, the other thing difference is that uh, a, a novel is meant to be read in its current form. Yeah. Uh, so I can give anybody the novel once the once the editing is done, uh, and they will at least understand the what happens. Um, but for uh, a comic book, uh, that's not the final form. I can't give anybody the. The, the 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 script because it wouldn't make sense a lot of the a lot of a comic book is just sort of like a blueprint of uh, of what the what the final is going to be it's a lot of m- me giving notes to the artist and so like i will say something like make sure to put this make sure there's a knife present that we can see in this panel because it will pay off later which is something you would never do in a book because like you that you need you want to hold that back for the reader until it's necessary but for a comic you're really giving a blueprint to the artist and then the artist is drawing the final pages so when i finish a script i can only send it to so many people who understand how to read comic book scripts i can't send that to my wife um for instance so um it's quite a bit different also in that uh, when you're writing the comic script, you are not the final arbiter of what the final thing is going to do. It is a collaboration between you and uh, the artist. So uh, it's um, it's more an analogous to writing a movie script. But even then, you're writing a movie script and many people will read it. Uh, your ma- ma- your managers, your agents, executives. So you have to make it like flow. And even if I gave a movie script to my wife, she would at least understand what was happening, even if it was not the most fun experience. Where um, a, a a a comic script is really like page one, panel one. Here is what happens in the scene. Here is the dialogue. Page one, panel two. Uh, here is what happens. Here is the dialogue. It is. Are quite boring and stilted so uh it, you have to know that for a novel you're writing what the end product will be and for a comic you're really giving a blueprint to the artist of what they're going to uh to uh to uh, uh be writing and so it has to be oh sorry what they're going to be drawing so it has to be very 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 clear you have to it has to be uh uh, uh, so clear that it's almost uh, it gives everything away on that page so that the artist can understand what you're going for. Nice. So it's like uh, writing novel is like you're, you're writing as a, a voice or narrator and for a comic book you're like giving instructions for the artist. Right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. Uh, and you have to think of it that way as well. They're two very different mindsets. And it's often hard because you're writing the dialogue as yeah. if as it will be read by somebody, but the yeah. but the script is at, is 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 quite a bit stilted. So you're also I I end up rewriting a lot of dialogue once I see the final pages because um, because they're uh, they, they they end up looking so different than what I imagined or yeah. just when i see them what ends up happening a lot of times with a comic strip is i will overwrite the dialogue because i want the artist to get the facial expression right but uh 
once I see the page, I realize that that facial expression uh, conveys 90% of what I wanted to from the dialogue. So I end up cutting a lot of it. So it really is a collaboration between the two people. And, 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 and until you actually get the final lettering done, there's a lot of back and like, I changed the script quite a bit. Um, less now because I'm a much more confident comic book writer now than I once was. But even now I find myself uh, changing the dialogue. Very much like if you're making a movie, you, you, you end up changing the dialogue on the day, uh, potentially on the day you're shooting because it doesn't feel right uh, yeah. uh, uh, when it comes out of the actor's mouth. Oh, what was it like getting your first um, book, book deal? Uh, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, it finally, I mean, I talk a lot about it a lot with other writers, how it like, how writers feel like it finally validates you as a, uh, I don't think you need a book deal to feel validated. That That being said, when I got my first book deal, I did feel like, well, maybe I was on the right track. Uh, my first deal was Ichabod and I, uh, Ichabod Jones, Monster Hunter, uh, the book that we're in production on now for the third volume. And, uh, it really made me feel like maybe I wasn't crazy to like make this book. Um, and then I got a book deal for a, uh, a novel and I was like, oh, maybe like I am a better novelist than I think that I am. Uh, right now because like somebody else is like willing to take the chance on me now I came to realize that that's ridiculous and like you yeah. validate yourself and like uh, you end up making a lot of bad deals if you um, you end up making a lot of bad deals if you rely on a publisher to validate you I know I did uh, and I know a lot of people do on their first couple of book deals because they're just so excited to be to get a publishing deal uh, and to feel that level of validation and then to have something come out with like someone else's logo on it. So you're like, oh, look at me. I'm I'm a somebody. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I've since learned that uh, there's a lot of predatory practices in this industry in publishing specifically built upon that same idea of like, well, we know you're an artist and we know you're you're going to be seeking validation. So uh, yeah. we're going to use that to give you a, a much worse deal than we probably should. Um, not every publisher is like that, um, but certainly that first deal felt like that level of validation. Um, and it was only later that I realized um, that it was a false sense of validation and that I was the person who was really who like I, I should be putting faith in myself not waiting for somebody else to put faith in me. Yeah, because you're, you're doing all the work. Just... Yeah, I mean, that's why I pulled all of my rights back from all of my books. Um, yeah. 99, uh, sometimes I do anthology projects for somebody yeah. or I'll write something if someone's paying me specifically to write something for them. Yeah. But um, I... Uh, I pretty much uh, only write for my company, Wannabe Press, um, at and, and I then control all of the rights to that. And I pulled all the rights for most of my books back into Wannabe Press specifically for that reason. How's, um, how's publishing like books changed since like the internet has started? Since like everything like on ebooks and everything? 
Uh, well, uh, it certainly has democratized things quite a bit. It allows a lot of uh, it allows everybody to write and, and 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 publish their work. It doesn't. There's no gatekeepers anymore. Of course, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, yeah. The bad part is there's a lot of terrible books out there now that need editing. There's a lot of books that should never have been released or never or or needed to go through severe editing. Um, and it's a lot harder to stand out now than it's ever been before, which is why it's even more important to build your audience and be out mm -hmm. there promoting yourself and uh, and and really doing the hard work of uh, promoting and 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 marketing your book. Also, um, publishers have become much more reluctant to uh, to put marketing dollars behind a book. Uh, so it used to be uh, even a middleist author who wasn't a big name could, uh, you know, they could make a good living on um, could make a good living on uh, on releasing books and and uh, and now there are so many books out there that it's sort of drowned out everyone but the most popular authors uh, at, at a publishing company at least. And now publishing companies don't really put any money behind any books except for their like big sellers. So, uh, just it's much more individualistic now. Um, yes. But the good news is that it also allows so many more voices to be in, to be heard that uh, that were never being heard before, and so many it offers so many people the chance to make a living, and so many people a chance to build a fan base, and so many more different kinds of voices to get into the game um, than ever before. I was looking at your uh, book covers, man. Who did your, they're awesome book covers. Who did your art for your books? Uh, well, uh, the ones for the God's Verse and the Obsidian Spindle Saga um, were all done by uh, the creative Paramita, mm -hmm. who is uh, an amazing uh, book cover designer and criminally underutilized by people. Yeah the fantasy genre um so uh she i also have book covers by uh other artists um uh the book cover for sorry for existing was done by Sarene, i believe Sarene rose um uh, uh the book cover for the vessel was done by lee cosi who's a very uh famous star wars watercolorist and um yeah, but most that. of them, most of them were done by Creative Paramita because I really just love her style and what she brings to the process. And her her book covers feel like vibrant and alive in yeah. a way that I don't see a lot in um, uh, in in books. A lot of book covers are exactly the same as every other book. Yeah. Um, and my goal is to be similar to other books, but also wholly unique. And I think uh, her work is both uh, similar to what el else is out there, but also wholly unique as well. Definitely, really beautiful. Thank you. And uh, those are like the fifth or sixth covers that have been on those books. So the Godsverse books specifically have been uh, quite difficult to get right. I've I've released them um, as 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 uh, as single books. I've released them as collections. I've released them. Uh, I mean, I must have like twenty covers for those books at this point. Uh, but 
I feel like we finally got it right the last time through, which mm. is when we finally re-released them in January. Um, we saw a huge surge in new sales that we haven't ever before. So I'm uh, I'm very happy with how it. Uh, I'm very happy with the new covers. So thank you for saying that. Well, very welcome. Sort of how to what's it called? Uh, word. How should I get into these uh, monsters? Uh, what's the word? I forget what I forget the word where you like go into something. Transition. Transition. Yeah. Want to talk you. about some Minnesota monsters? Yeah, let's do that. Cool. Um, so, so, so um, yeah. I did some, but did, I did a bunch of research before so, this to so, find uh, sort of the the best. The best monsters. Uh, I, I think my favorite one is uh, Pepe. Yeah. Uh, Pepe is the sort of Lake Pepin Loch Ness monster. Yeah. Um. So I really love that there's like a Loch Ness monstery thing in Minnesota, or in uh, right by uh, about 60 miles downstream of Minneapolis St. Paul. Oh, that was great. I think it's like of a like monster in like every lake of in every state that's I've done post so far. Yeah. There's, there's like a monster. Like all the great lakes, there's Pepe and there's uh Alti and a whole bunch of them. It's yeah, great. it's awesome. I uh I I I don't do that much work with cryptids, honestly. I don't uh I, uh, I, I I deal mostly with mythological monsters, like from yeah. like actual mythology. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to go and find these more like local legendy kind of uh, kind of uh, kind of monsters uh, and the more like sort of down to earth monsters that don't necessarily have a bunch of magical powers. They just kind of like exist in this local folk folklore. Yeah, it's like a. So Tasmanian, uh, when we get to like um, to Australia or New Zealand, when they have like uh, Tasmanian um, tiger, mm-hmm. that, that probably was a real animal, and it, I think it died in nineteen early nineteen hundreds. I won't get into that. I'll be, but I think it's uh, they found Pepe in eighteen seventy six. They're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And Lewis book. Well, what I found was that there were newspaper accounts all the way back to the 1600s when wow, a really? Frenchman named Father Louis Hennepin claimed yeah. to see a huge serpent as big as a man's leg and seven or eight feet long. Um, however, uh, it's, uh, uh, other people have put it as high as 200 feet long. Yeah. So, tall tales for you. Yeah, for but- sure. For sure, and then there's also uh, another one that's popular all across the uh, the country, but is also in Minnesota, is the Wendigo. Uh, yeah. So the Wendigo uh, is a creature that was once a man, and then they ate another human, and then they transformed into a 15 foot tall shaggy monster with long fangs and glowing yellow eyes that is always hungry for human flesh. And I know they're kind of all over the country, the Wendigo, but yeah. they also popped up in um, in Minnesota. Yeah, we, 
or like Wendigo, Wintico, Wintico, Wintico. It's like a bunch of different ways to say it. And it's, uh, it's tons. Like it, it's hard to find stuff on the Wendigo from like uh, Native American mm-hmm. folklore because they don't really like talking about it right. too much. Well, a lot of these are from uh, Native American folklore. So yeah. um, I think most of the ones that I found were from um, the Ojibwe people. Um, most of what's up in Minnesota uh, seems to come from their, uh, from their monsters. Like there's a Lake Superior cave monster um, uh, that dates back sightings as far as the uh, early 17th century. But uh, yeah, that that one comes from the Ojibwa people. Uh, the wolf deer also comes from the Ojibwa people. The thunder horse, also. Um, so there's just uh, there's a lot of them that come from that same tradition. Uh, there's a quote from a 1661 Jesuit relations document stated, which causes greater stern was the telling that met us upon the lake. Not only that the man disputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous, or they were to await our coming, had met their death to the previous winter in a very strange manner. The poor man, according to the report given us, was seized with an element unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease which affects their imagination and causes them, causes them a more than canine hunger. This causes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like variable werewolves and devour them ferociously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, even seeking fresh prey. And the more greedily they, the more they eat. The alignment attacked our deputies and as a death in the soul remedy among those simply people for checking such acts of murder they were slain over the state the course of their madness that's, that's from the wendigo right yeah that's crazy i wonder if it, I, I've heard this, i found this article about when wendigo psychosis maybe you found it too when no i didn't it? find that one what does that what does that say uh i'm gonna go work back on this it's characterized by deep raving for human flesh as food so it's also possibly tired, made up, judge yourself. I guess it's like, it's, they think it's a psychosis for a, you crave human flesh. Yeah. That's pretty much it. That's, yeah, that's, that's crazy, it. man. It's like with, uh, like vampires when they try to figure out why people think they're vampires and they think maybe it's a iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. I heard that a lot. Or it's a, there's different things, but I have to look it up when I do vampires. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why reluctantly codependent sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. 
Did you find the Minnesota Dog Man? I did find the Minnesota the Minnesota Dog Man. Hang on, where am I? Where was? There we go. Yeah, uh, and the Beast of Bray Road. Yeah. Also, and uh, the Michigan Dog Man are all kind of like similar, but there was definitely a Minnesota Dog Man uh, uh, sighted in various Minnesota counties. One in uh, Otterdale County. Let's see. I'll start off by saying that I have never believed in any of these sorts of creatures. But I saw something early in 2009. Oh, 11 years ago. That's not too far. It's not that old. Crazy. Um, it really disturbed me. And it's making me change my mind. I was under the influence of... I was not under the influence of any drugs. And I have better than average eyesight. And the lightning was nearing sunset, but I was still able to see clearly. So I'll get this underway, explain my story, and maybe someone can shed some light on this for me. I live in Ferguson Falls, Minnesota, which is west central Minnesota, about an hour drive from Fargo, North Dakota. How was it? You ever been there, North Dakota? To North Dakota? No, I, uh, I mostly, I mostly stay in the southwest of the country yeah. at this point. But I have been to Minnesota when How's I was much younger. How's it in Minnesota? It's lovely. It was so clean. Um, I went to Minnesota to see my uh, aunt, uh, who owns a baker, who owned a bakery up there. Uh, we went to a Twins game, and all I could think of the whole time was uh, just how absolutely, like, spotlessly clean it was in Minneapolis. Nice. I need, I need some like bakeries down here in Tennessee there we go how's your aunt's bakery was it awesome uh yeah she was quite famous uh, for her bakery uh back when she was a uh, a cook in DC yeah. and then she was also quite famous for it in Minnesota um before she passed so oh. um it's uh my and uh, my my sister got a lot of recipes from uh from her and uh I always enjoy going home because she always makes tons of uh of like amazing uh, uh, baked goods and such. Uh, my mother-in-law is out in the country about three to four miles out of Ferguson Falls. And I was staying there while my wife and her mother went shopping in town. They called me and asked if I wanted to go to a 7 p.m. movie. So I left the house at about 6.30 p.m. to 6.45 p.m. to meet them at the theater. About two miles from their house on a country road known only at the Wendell Road along the Mystica River, I saw three white-tailed deer. Two deer were rather small, probably just yearlings, and a larger doe, who I assumed was their mother. Me, being an avid hunter, lover of wildlife, and future wildlife biologist, stopped to look at the deer. I also should mention that I hunt in the area and have spent my whole life in the Ferguson Falls area. The deer were followed a small creek bed, which is in fact the Mystica River. So there were hardly any trees except for one. Maybe I, I didn't see that there because of the tree, but I just noticed something crouching behind the tree, crouching, sorry, uh, behind a tree and my side of the road, looking at the deer and to my belief, hunting them. It just sat there looking at the deer, taking no notice of me, even though I was in my truck no more than 40 yards away. With a clear view, with nothing obstructing my view of it, I, it had one hand on the tree that was bracing itself with what 
struck me as shocking was the fact that it seemed like to be a two-legged creature, not a four-legged creature. Its hands appeared to be have opposable thumbs and rather slender and long, very unlike a wolf. The creature looked as though if it stood upright. It would be over seven feet tall. This font is horrible. Can't read it. Uh, seven feet tall, with protruding muscle, broad shoulders, a slender waist, thick muscular thighs, and being as there was snow on the ground. I couldn't see the feet. He was deep, dark brown in color throughout the body. After several seconds of looking at the creature in shock, the deer ran off. Then something amazing happened. It looked right at me. Okay. Uh, Osdo blaming me for losing his meal. He just sat there looking at me and blinking but not moving. This scared the crap out of me, so I hit the glass, gas pedal and drove off. It was very dark in the movie, so I didn't feel like drudging through 3.5 feet of snow the possibility of a monster looking area. He was currently looking for a meal that I scared off. So about 10 a.m. I went back there and walked to the tree. Under the tree there was no snow so there were no tracks that I could see but leading up the tree there were three tracks leading in from my grandmother's lost field which was hard black dirt. And you can see what Minnesota field looks like in late winter early spring. You can't make anything out of dirt. The tracks I did find were about six to seven inches in length, but were very clearly canine prints with the exception of a four toe looking marks in the snow. That's scary. Yeah, man. That's crazy. What are chances? That's, what are chances of seeing something like that? That's crazy. Especially like for. I don't know, I haven't seen like a lot of deer lately in my area. Oh. Well, I don't ever see them around me, so. Yeah. What kind of wildlife do you have uh, down there? In LA? Uh, yeah. Not very much. Uh, got a lot of dogs, some coyotes. Yeah. Uh, but, Are... like, it's pretty much all paved over in LA, so mm. you get some birds. Some, uh, there's some possums. Sometimes we get a possum. Um, I don't know. Mostly it's dogs and cats that roam around. There's a lot of stray dogs in, 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 uh, in, uh, Long Beach. A lot of stray dogs. One of the, one of the capitals of stray dogs in the whole country is, uh, is, uh, is in Los Angeles. There was that one cougar that was like, Laying about on the Hollywood sign, I remember hearing yeah, about that. Yeah, there's some there's some of that up in Hollywood, uh, yeah. in like Los Angeles forests and such. I'm in Long Beach, so yeah. there's less of that in um, yeah, less of that around where I am. But yeah, there's a lot of hiking trails, so there's a lot of stuff up there. How's, how's the food in Long Beach? Is it awesome? It's awesome, man. Especially yeah. if you like, uh, especially if you like Mexican food. Oh yeah, I heard it like the best. What's the best place, best uh, restaurant there, in your opinion? Uh, and there's a lot actually. Uh, if you want all around, uh, there's a place called the Ranch, which has like yeah. amazing steak. Um, there's a, a bunch of like, you really can't go wrong. You can like throw a, throw a rock and hit a Mexican place, and any of them are going to be amazing. Nice. Um, so so yeah, there's. 
I don't know. I can't just name one. Can't name just one of them because, like, there's five around our block and they are all great. Yeah. What's your uh, go to meal? I have this thing called an Alhambra at a place that I go to a lot, which mm-hmm. is like uh, pick your meat and then mm-hmm. you have, uh, and then you can, you can, uh, you get like uh, uh, beans and rice and, and avocado and cheese and such. And, it's quite good. Uh, I usually do uh, cacheta, which is cheek or tongue, um, when I go to these places. Uh, so yeah, if I have to do something normal, it's usually al pastor uh, tacos. It's usually my favorite, just general all around favorite one from anywhere. Nice. Dude, been hungry. Sounds like delicious. Is it another? Sorry. No, it really is delicious. Now I'm hungry too. Uh, the second story is from another unnamed man. He saw a creature in early September in early year 1999. That's 21 years ago. Jeez. I feel old. <laughs> On a Air Force base in St. Louis County. He said it looked like a dogman. Here's the email he sent to the dogman encounter site. First off, I'd like to keep my name confidential, just for the fact that it happened on an Air Force base and I don't know who reads this stuff. This happened sometime in September of 99. I forget the exact date. It was early in the month, though. It was between 2 and 3 a.m. I was a security force airman working third shift on base patrol. Now, mind you, this is the Air National Guard base that I worked at full time. It's on the north side of Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, next to the international airport, north to northeast is nothing but large wooded areas. Forest areas, third shift on the base was pretty boring. 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., which and us full-timers worked a skeleton crew, usually only five to six of us on third shift. I was in the patrol truck doing my usual rounds, checking doors and fence lines late at night. On the north side of the base was usually creepy enough when patrolling by yourself, Anyways, I was on this road, driving towards our baseball field, when my headlights caught a pair of eyes reflecting back at me. They were almost eye level with me, and I was sitting in an F-150. Well, that was tall. Yeah. Uh, around this time, a few of the guys had been seeing this huge uh, buck around the property, like a 615-pointer or something about around that size. I was about 80 yards or so when I saw these eyes reflecting back at me. So I'm thinking it was a big deer. I gotta see this thing. So I hit the gas and started speeding towards the field. This is where it all happened so fast, it almost hard to explain. There was a, there was a little slope behind the baseball field. It sloped down probably around 12 to 15 feet into a brush line. The brush went about 30 feet, then turned into a th- thick tree line. The brush was probably uh, armpit high to me and pretty tough to transverse through. Being so thick, as I turned into the baseball field and turned the truck towards the thing, I just caught the rear end of the thing leaping down the slope, below the line of sight of my headlights. The thing was no more than about 20 feet ahead of me when it leaped. All I got to look at was the back of the he- was the back end of the thing, and it was big. The best I can do to describe it is to say that it was wolf or, wolf or dog-like in nature. It had a long tail, longer than two feet. The hind legs exact, look exactly like that of dogs, same with the black paws, but the paws were huge. They were bigger than my hands for sure. 
The hair um, fur was wavy yet matted and thick, like a like wool. Kind of like wool. Very, it's very Minnesota. Makes sense here. That it makes very much a lot of sense. What he's saying. Yeah. Right? Especially like with Minnesota winter winters. Hard mm-hmm. like, uh, the color is blondish or very. Why is it blonde? Uh, they're very man. The color is very blondish or very light brown. I didn't notice any gray in it, but this all happened for about two to three seconds. I sat in my patrol truck for a couple of seconds, confused and thinking. I know what I saw, but it couldn't have been what I saw. So I hopped out with my flashlight and M16 rifle and walked to the edge of the slope. All I heard was a thing running through the woods in front of me, heading in a northwest direction. And this thing sounded like a moose charging through the trees. It made a lot of noise. That's when I started to get really scared, thinking if this is some sort of wolf or whatever it could be, or whatever it could be, my M16 isn't going to do a thing to this animal. So I jumped back into my troll truck as fast as I could and headed back onto the south headquarters. I never really told any of my other members about this for fear of ridicule or, or being called crazy. There's no way I misidentified this thing. I'm a trained observer and avid hunter. I work with animal re- uh, rehabilitation with the uh, MN. Minnesota DNR in the past. I know my animals in the north woods extremely well. I saw exactly what I saw, and that was the back end of a large wolf dog thing. That basically had eyes level with mine while I was in a patrol truck. The back end was definitely much larger than any largest deer or black bears I've seen. At this point, I remember the clear with the tail and back paws, as well as the texture and color of the hair fur. This is my story. I never told anyone. In fear of recall. I swear it is to be the truth. I know this. Uh, it's number 1999. Crazy. Wow. Hard. Oh, how tall is the F1? It's like they're up there. The F1. I don't know if it's like uh, if it's jacked up though. Right. Okay. Have you heard about the Minnesota Iceman? Yeah, I read about that, but it seemed to be just a uh, one that that someone brought to Minnesota, yeah. not like a not a, a local legend. Like it was dead before they came it came to Minnesota. Yeah, they found it in like uh, somewhere in Asia, I think. Yeah, broader. It's like a lot of, I heard uh, read a I heard about it. Another podcast, and you're talking about like it could be fake, but they don't know for sure. Cause there, there was a fake one, and like, mm. and the guy was like a carnival guy, and they made a, a replica one for take around for shows, and and they're thinking, oh, the, this is the fake one. It's, it's always been fake. Other people was like, no, it's this is this is a replica we can take around so the real one doesn't get damaged. Right. It's interesting. It's probably just like a frozen Neanderthal, like some. Yeah, probably frozen. a Neanderthal or something for sure. Yeah. yeah. It makes it's, it's so interesting. Oh, it's fast, man! Damn. <laughs> yeah, man, it's almost an hour. 
You were, uh, did you hear about the haunting of Loon Lake Cemetery? I did not hear about that. Let's hear about it. Send a link. Um, Mary Jane Telloger was born on January 5th, 1862 in Border Plains, Iowa. She was the eighth and last child of John and Phoebe Telloger. Oh, names Telloger. John and Phoebe lived long, long, lived long lives, according to her obituary, published in the Spring Spirit Lake Beacon on March 3rd, 1908. Yeah, that's a good life. Yeah, for sure. names do you like them or words like the language and etymology to your universe you're writing in sorry you broke up there a little bit what did you say like when you uh like making characters names you try to like make it sense for like the etymology of the universe you're writing in yeah i try um I can't say always succeed. I try to make all the fairies feel like fairy names and all yeah. the humans feel like human names and all the the uh, the, the Greeks feel like Greek names. All of uh, a try because then it, like it helps ground people to know what they can think. And with with novels, especially you want people to kind of uh, understand what uh, how somebody speaks. And it's uh, because there's no other. There's no other way except for like, like they have to they have to picture it in their brain. So you have to kind of uh, help them along, and having the correct entomology definitely helps. Makes sense. Makes sense. I like that. I really like that when people like do that because it's, it's weird when like you have like you're in like a Greek world and some someone's name is like Steve, for example. It really takes you like, out of it. You know yeah, I mean? for sure. And with uh, with uh, with humans, I, uh, I you know with like with with Americans, I try to like so yeah, I try to do all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, this has been real fun, man. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh no problem. Been been a blast. Where can people find you? Uh, so if you want to find any of my work, you can just go to russellnolte.com forward slash uh, mail and sign up for our mailing list or just russellnolte.com forward slash books and you'll see all of my books. My books are available on any platform. Um, so you should be able to pick them up, whether it's Amazon or, um, or, or Kobo or Barnes and Noble. You can pick them up uh, wherever Good, whatever, wherever great books are sold. Nice. Um, getting so like social media stuff you're on. Oh yeah. Uh, so you can find me on. I mostly hang out on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so you can find me at Russ at Facebook.com forward slash Russell Nolte or Twitter.com forward slash Russell Nolte or Instagram.com forward slash Russell Nolte. Nice. Those are the three places that I'm most active. Nice. Um. You gotta come back on and tell me about the series you're working on right now. Sounds good, man. It. Yeah, I'll come on when uh, once it's launched next year. Nice. Thank you. Awesome, man. Let's stop recording.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Thank you.